A new lawsuit against the NFL over the Chargers' move to L.A. San Diego didn't lose the Chargers. The Chargers just lost San Diego. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A big change in vaccine mandates for businesses. Those companies that were struggling to get in line with the OSHA mandate can stop because they don't have to mandate vaccines. A look at how the Navy is handling this phase of the pandemic and the threat facing monarch butterflies. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Football fans are still buzzing after an exciting and memorable weekend of NFL playoff games. One team that was not involved in any of those games was the Chargers. And one city that definitely wasn't was San Diego. The Chargers left town for Los Angeles back in 2017. Here's then San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner the day the team announced they were leaving San Diego after 56 years. San Diego didn't lose the Chargers. The Chargers just lost San Diego. They're losing out on our strong marketplace. They're losing out on our unmatched quality of life. And probably most importantly, they're losing out on 56 years of dedication, of loyalty, of family. A new lawsuit was filed Monday accusing the National Football League and its owners of violating relocation terms with the city of San Diego. The complaint was filed by former San Diego City Attorney Michael Aguirre and former Deputy City Attorney Maria Severson on behalf of San Diego resident Ruth Henricks. Here to tell us more is Jeff McDonald, investigative reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Jeff, welcome. Good morning, Jane. So you write that the complaint filed against the NFL and team owners begins with a quote from Chargers owner Dean Spano saying, only in the case of severe financial hardship for the team, defined by very narrow, specific and confining conditions, could we request to renegotiate with the city? Uh, Can you tell us more about the complaint and what it's alleging? So I think the uh, plaintiff's uh, attorneys led their complaint with that quote because it so uh, aptly summarizes their allegations, which are that neither the Chargers or the NFL and the other team owners satisfied the league relocation rules. One of the rules in the relocation policy 
states that the team has to not be uh, financially viable in the, in the market it's choosing to leave. So it can't be profitable and make a legitimate argument for leaving a, a city according to the league's own relocation policy. So the plaintiff's attorneys are using that as exhibit A in, in the alleged bad faith negotiations with the city. And remind us again, what led the Chargers to leave San Diego? Well, the Spanos family wanted a new stadium. It's no secret. They worked with city officials for uh, a dozen years or more trying to uh, either upgrade uh, Qualcomm Stadium, Jack Murphy Stadium, or find a new location somewhere in San Diego County. Uh, Their argument was that they couldn't compete with the bigger market teams that have stadiums and lots of revenue from luxury boxes and things like that. The league shares a lot of its TV uh, income and and other regular income equally among all 32 owners. But the teams do make their own money on things like luxury seating and other amenities that San Diego didn't enjoy at Qualcomm Stadium. Mm. So, so did the Chargers or the NFL pay the city when they left? No, that's part of the allegation is that the, uh, the city spent millions of dollars trying to accommodate the Chargers, working with them on a number of fronts over a number of years, trying to keep the Chargers in San Diego. They approved the ticket guarantee. They upgraded Qualcomm Stadium. They formed a, a citizens task force. They presented the team a development option in Mission Valley to offset construction costs for a new stadium on that on that acreage, none of which the Chargers ran with. And they left for Los Angeles, uh, of course, five years ago, thinking they could uh, make more money. Hmm. And interesting is the lawsuit wasn't filed by the city of San Diego. In fact, the city is named as a defendant. So who is the plaintiff and how is the city involved? The plaintiff is a taxpayer named Ruth Hendricks. She's uh, represented by former city attorney Mike Aguirre and his law partner, Maria Severson. They hope to recover damages that would go directly to the city. Now, the city is named as a defendant, although that's a necessary legal procedure. Uh, that's required in a taxpayer lawsuit. I don't believe the city will be adversarial in its uh, relation to this complaint. In fact, the mayor and city attorney issued a joint statement yesterday basically saying, you know, good luck to Aguirre and Severson. And San Diego isn't the first city the NFL has left. The Rams also relocated to Los Angeles, leaving my hometown, St. Louis, after some 20 years And they also filed suit against the Rams and the NFL. Uh, What happened in that instance? Well, the lawyer who litigated that, who came up with the legal argument, they won a nearly $800 million settlement from the NFL, which, of course, is huge news. And uh, the lawyer who came up with that strategy alleged that they violated the relocation policy. Some of the same arguments that uh, Mr. Aguirre and Ms. uh, Severson put forward in their complaint this week. So they're basically co-opting that legal strategy. This $700-$790 million settlement that the city of St. Louis received last year basically was a a huge motivator, and uh, some lawyers in San Diego think, why not us? So they're going to try and get their share from the the NFL and the Chargers. And is that why this suit uh, is being filed now, you think? Yes. According to the complaint, they only learned about this misrepresentation and fraud late last year when they learned that uh, Union Tribune columnist Bryce uh, Miller quoted a former Chargers executive saying that uh, Mr. Spanos had made up his mind to leave San Diego as early as 2006. So their argument is going to be that uh, the statute of limitations don't get triggered until you learn of the fraud. So in that way, they can uh, explain to a court why they waited five years to file this case.
Mm. So what are legal experts saying about the lawsuit? Do they believe the lawsuit has merit? I haven't talked to a, a lot of lawyers outside the two that brought this complaint. I can tell you they feel satisfied that they're on firm legal footing based on the outcome in St. Louis and consultations they've had with a number of other lawyers across the country. You know, it's a long shot. The NFL has the best paid lawyers in, in the nation, and uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big lift. Uh, however, they're not reinventing the wheel here either. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, how have city officials reacted to the lawsuit? They noted that it's a that it's a, a tough legal sled, right? This is uh, this is the NFL. They're a multi-billion dollar corporation. Uh, that said, I think the outcome in St. Louis has given them uh, some confidence that they might succeed, although the city attorneys uh, and the city's uh, officials have not dedicated any public resources to this effort, which I find interesting. Hmm. Uh, Now, we know how the legal process can take a long time to be resolved. What's the next step for this complaint? Uh, Well, the entities will be, the defendants will be served uh, and they'll have to respond and there'll be some hearings set. Probably the defendants will file a motion to dismiss based on a number of legal uh, grounds. And uh, if the case surpasses that hurdle, uh, that's what happened in St. Louis. That's when the negotiations for settlement started. Uh, This can take years, of course. There's a lot of issues to run through. And of course, the NFL would want to limit any damages at all. Uh, The plaintiffs would want to look at damages along the lines of what St. Louis received. So there's a lot of money at stake. The big question would be whether it survives, whether the lawsuit survives its uh, initial motions to dismiss on whatever legal grounds the defendants put forward. All right, Jeff McDonald, an investigative reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jay. After a loss at the U.S. Supreme Court, the Biden administration has officially withdrawn its vaccine mandate for large businesses. The mandate would have applied to U.S. firms with 100 employees or more requiring workers to receive COVID vaccinations or weekly COVID tests. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration says the rule may return in some form, but that format has not been decided. Meanwhile, the CDC reports just 63% of eligible Americans have been fully vaccinated, only 40% have received booster shots. Joining me is legal analyst Dan Eaton. Dan, welcome to the program. Good to be with you again, Maureen. Now, that 6-3 Supreme Court ruling against the vaccine mandate was pretty much the death knell for this rule. But the Supreme Court allowed a vaccine mandate for healthcare workers in facilities that received federal funds. They allowed that to stand. So remind us why they did not allow the business vaccine mandate. The reason that the Supreme Court reached a different ruling in the challenge to the Medicare Medicaid mandate requiring facilities who receive those fundings to have their staffs vaccinated uh, is because it was a different law. One law does not fit all. Specifically, what the court said is that agencies routinely condition the grant of federal funds on adhering to certain terms that are set by the agency. The court actually, towards the end of the Medicare Medicaid ruling, said two sentences that pretty much reconcile both rulings. It said, quote, the challenges posed by a global pandemic do not allow a federal agency to exercise power that Congress has not conferred upon it, referring to the OSHA ruling. At the same time, such unprecedented circumstances 
provide no grounds for limiting the exercise of authorities the agency has long been recognized to have, close quote. In other words, different laws, different outcomes. So where does this leave U.S. companies when it comes to requirements for COVID vaccines? Where it leaves U.S. companies is that those companies that were uh, struggling to get in line with the OSHA mandate can stop because they don't have to mandate uh, vaccines because this rule is no longer in place. Now, private companies may still require uh, vaccines on their own, but the death knell of the OSHA rule means they no longer have to. And I'm not aware of any state that requires large companies or companies of any size to mandate vaccines, except in limited industry circumstances. On another topic here, San Diego Unified and other school districts have run up against similar court rulings saying that they don't have the authority to impose COVID vaccine mandates for students. Now, a bill is being introduced in Sacramento to add COVID vaccines to the required school vaccination list. Is that likely to satisfy the legal challenges? Well, it's going to satisfy one aspect of legal challenges, and this gets to the point I made earlier about different laws, different outcomes. The issue in those school cases was that uh, COVID-19 was not on the list of required vaccinations that the uh, California legislature had enacted. The California legislature is now going to change that by adding COVID-19 along with rubella and other diseases for which uh, students uh, and presumably staff have to get vaccinated. Again, a different law, a different outcome. The, the, the difference in these cases is the source of law and whether the government agency that's exercising this authority really has it. What could OSHA do to bring back some kind of worker safety requirements for COVID? Could they specify a vaccine mandate only for certain industries? Yes, and the Supreme Court said as much. It said, look, there are going to be some workplaces where the risk of COVID is especially problematic, and you can issue regulations on that. What you can do is issue this broad regulation that applies to 80 million some people across industries without regard to specific hazards that are represented by COVID-19 that actually cuts across all industries and outside of the workplace. It's a public health crisis, not a workplace-specific crisis. What kind of precedent could the Supreme Court ruling against vaccine mandates set for future decisions involving workplace health and safety? But that's the fascinating thing, Maureen. Uh, What the Supreme Court has said is OSHA, and by extension, other federal agencies, stay in your lane. Because if you go beyond the specific grant of congressional authority with respect to the exercise of your power, we are going to block you from doing that. And that could mean that agencies in issuing regulations are going to have to issue regulations narrowly focused on their specific mandate of congressional power. And finally, Dan, I know you're an avid court watcher. What's your take on today's news that one of the three liberal justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, Stephen Breyer, is retiring? It's huge, Maureen, and it's huge for a couple of reasons. First, because uh, obviously Justice Breyer was one of three members of the what's called the liberal bloc in the judicial, not the political sense of that, and it gives the Democratic president, Joe Biden, the opportunity to replace him. And he's going to replace it, apparently, with an historic appointment, which he promised to make, of an African-American woman. This is going to change the ideological composition of the court, but it means that one liberal justice, who's the oldest member of the court, is going to be replaced place, presumably, by a much younger African-American female justice for all the consequences that entails going forward in the decades to come. But the conservative liberal balance is still six conservative, three liberal justices. 
Yes, the uh, conservative liberal balance is not going to change, except that the interesting thing about Supreme Court appointments is that you never know what issues are going to crop up in the decades that a justice sits, and you don't know whether those issues are going to be decided along traditional ideological lines. That's what makes court watching so much fun. <laughs> I've been speaking with legal analyst Dan Eaton, a partner with the San Diego law firm Meltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek. Dan, as always, thank you so much. Great to be with you, Maureen. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another hasn't. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. The military is trying to manage this latest phase of the pandemic. KPBS military and veterans reporter Steve Walsh says it comes after two years of hard-learned lessons. In the opening months of the pandemic, the Navy was caught off guard. In April 2020, it was forced to sideline the USS Roosevelt in Guam to stop a quickly spreading COVID-19 outbreak that infected over a third of the sailors. The head of the Navy, Admiral Michael Gilday, scrambled to get the situation under control. Our goal is to get a clean ship, right? We have uh, people ashore that are isolated that have tested positive. We have others that are, that are quarantined or isolated. One sailor on the aircraft carrier died. The commander was relieved. And the situation became a case study in how not to handle COVID-19. The Roosevelt was made much worse, largely by self-inflicted wounds by the Navy. Brad Martin is a retired Navy captain who is now a researcher at RAND Corporation. He says the Navy underestimated the risk of COVID and was slow to react. They were befuddled because they were getting a lot of conflicted guidance. They were befuddled because the medical chain of command was telling people one thing. The operational chain of command was telling them something else. Fast forward to early January. The USS Lincoln was about to depart from San Diego. Sailors are required to wear a mask now. The whole crew is vaccinated. Many had boosters. With the carrier as a backdrop, the head of the strike group, Rear Admiral J.T. Anderson, assured reporters that the Navy now has its act together. We do have some positive cases within the strike group, but we're extremely confident that uh, we can safely and effectively execute our mission. But the Navy has eased up on some of the restrictions that were put in place after the Roosevelt outbreak. Gone are the two weeks of isolation prior to boarding a ship. And the Admiral announced that the crew of 3,000 included sailors who had active COVID cases. Frankly, we've learned a lot over the course of the last couple of years. And we feel like we're in a a good place because we're 
highly vaccinated. The Navy has a 98% vaccination rate, but thousands of sailors have applied for exemptions. So far, the Navy hasn't granted any religious exemptions, though a federal judge has blocked the Navy from taking action against 35 SEALs who are suing on religious grounds. Meanwhile, for the first time in at least a decade, the Marines did recently grant a handful without listing a reason. Vice Admiral Roy Kitchener is in charge of Naval Surface Forces in the Pacific. The way we deal with it now is it's more of an endemic, right, than a pandemic. You know, for me personally, uh, I think it's going to be with us over the next few years, maybe forever. I don't know. Kitchener says no one will deploy without being vaccinated. Ships are doing contact tracing on board. And mirroring the Center for Disease Control guidelines, six sailors are spending five days in isolation instead of 10. There is no magic to getting them out quicker. There's just more tools to manage it. And that's really the key thing we look at. Do you have enough people, you know, that can operate that ship safely? Martin says the Navy has made progress in keeping sailors healthy. Still, he says a lot of effort went into keeping ships at sea. Maybe, he says, a better answer was keeping the ships at home rather than sending them on non-essential missions. The Navy needs to think seriously about what's really definite must-do deployment and what's something that can wait, Uh, creating all kinds of havoc in order to try to meet a commitment may not be necessary. And he says the Navy still has trouble anticipating crises instead of learning from its failures. Joining me is KPBS military and veterans reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Now, talk to us more about the mixed messages the Navy was getting in the early days of the pandemic. So, you know, of course, the the Trump administration was in charge of the U.S. government, and that included his reaction to the virus. So, The Navy will say that uh, this is not their first rodeo, that they understand the importance of keeping outbreaks contained. You know, they do surveillance testing for a number of different potential diseases on board, you know, especially big ships like an aircraft carrier. But it does feel like there was an overall kind of lax attitude toward COVID-19. There was a port stop in Vietnam that uh, was mostly optics for the USS Roosevelt. You know, it turns out that that was their last port call for a while. After the USS Roosevelt's failed response to COVID that you talk about in the feature, what measures did the Navy put into place before vaccines were widely available? So there was a much greater emphasis on testing. A couple of months later, there was an outbreak on board the USS Kidd, and the Navy immediately flew a medical team out to the ship. They immediately tested everyone on board. They put six sailors on helicopters and got them off the ship. They brought the ship into port and got it decontaminated. It was very much a medical first response. You know, and they set up uh, isolated safe ports in places like Guam so sailors could have some leave while they're deployed without mixing with the local population. Sailors began isolating for two weeks prior to getting on board ships. Obviously, everyone started wearing masks. Uh, They tried to limit the number of sailors in common areas, like, you know, during meals. The Navy eventually started getting pretty high marks for how aggressively they were tackling the virus. Do we have any numbers on how many naval personnel contracted COVID and uh, how many died? The Navy has had more than 71,000 cases of COVID since the pandemic 
began. More than 11,000 cases are active right now. Now, many of those are asymptomatic or they, they show very mild symptoms. That's one thing that the world really learned coming out of the Roosevelt is that you could have a whole population of people who didn't look sick, but they could still be spreading the virus, especially younger people with no other risk factors. We have had those 17 sailors who have died. Right now, we have a sailor uh, in the hospital in San Diego, Petty Officer First Class Ryan Denny. He's an avionics technician who is based on Coronado. He had uh, re no recent sea duty. Other members of his family were sick. He was diagnosed late last month, and a short time later, he was hospitalized. He's now on life support system at a local hospital, but he's only 29 years old, he was vaccinated, no pre-existing risk factors. That's what makes COVID so potentially dangerous, even for the, an otherwise healthy population like the Navy. Did the Navy or the military in general ever perceive COVID as a security threat? Oh, I think after the Roosevelt, that was a real wake-up call. The Navy started to see how potentially vulnerable they were and how hard it was to get that virus out of a ship's population once it got on board and started to spread. A lot of effort then started to get in, go into getting new guidance together to keep the Navy afloat, so to speak. Now, sailors on board the USS Lincoln and other ships are now required to wear masks. And I'm trying to think about that. Is that all the time they're on the ship they have to wear a mask? Yep, um, this is uh, true. They, they have to do this at all times, in all places. This is, along with vaccines, one of the things that they, uh, they really have to emphasize as, as a sort of a long-term protection against COVID-19. And the vice admiral told you no one deploys who is not vaccinated. So does that mean that 35 unvaccinated Navy SEALs and the other thousands of unvaccinated personnel have to stay stateside no matter what? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Maureen. You know, they haven't released a lot of details on, on what is happening with those SEALs that are the subject of that, that court order now that they cannot be compelled to become vaccinated. Now, SEALs don't necessarily deploy with the surface fleet. So the Navy also hasn't taken any action against those thousands of other sailors who have applied for exemptions, including religious exemptions. While they wait, I've been told that those sailors won't be deploying on board ships, uh, you know, if they're not vaccinated. Today, actually, the Navy is going to be officially releasing new guidance, which will point the way to treating the virus more as endemic, putting in some precautions for the long haul while formally scrapping some of the other precautions, like there was two weeks of isolation prior to coming on board a ship. I think that's probably going to go away. And considering that the Navy is now dealing with COVID as endemic, do you think COVID vaccines will be part of the standard medical requirements for recruits coming in? Well, you know, recruits have to be vaccinated just like the rest of the force. You know, some of the first people to be dismissed from the Navy were recruits who chose not to become vaccinated. There is a, a long process for putting those shot requirements um, onto the list of I believe 14 other shots that are required uh, for service in the Navy. So it could be a while before that is formally part of that, that protocol. The Rand Corporation researcher Brad Martin had an interesting take on the subject. Was all the effort to keep ships at sea during the pandemic really necessary? Yeah, that's that's the thing. Martin thinks that there, there are a couple things here that the Navy did 
did pretty well when it came to reacting to the virus itself. They really did get their act together. The Navy is actually very good at kind of what is called lessons learned. They see a problem. They see a mistake when it's happened. They go back through and they they look at the process and they look at ways of fixing it. They're much less able to, uh, to anticipate future problems, which is how they got into the issue with the Roosevelt in the first place. But yeah, he is very keen on the idea that you know, maybe a major part of this response should have been the whole world was in pandemic. We don't need to send ships to Japan. We don't need to show up in Indonesia or in parts of South America. Maybe we should have just kept more of the fleet at home and just not put them at risk. So then you're only doing those sort of critical missions. I've been speaking with KPBS military and veterans reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. One often overlooked part of the conversation around rising rates of suicide in this country is how youth are impacted, and in particular, how black youth are impacted. A recent report from the California nonprofit Children Now shows the suicide rate for black youth and young adults aged 10 to 24 has doubled since 2014, while rates among other groups have remained the same. So what's driving this disturbing trend and where's help? Joining me is Dr. Monica Hinton, president of the Association of Black Psychologists, San Diego Chapter. Dr. Hinton, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So much of the research out there suggests that Black youth are dealing with higher rates of suicide risk factors. Can you talk a bit about what those factors are? For one, we are seeing more youth being bullied because of their ethnicity, a lot more racial statements, a lot more name calling, even a lot more happening just in the classroom, even with their instructors, with their teachers. And so our children are bringing those feelings home. And then if they're coming home to families where there are socioeconomic challenges, there's impaired family functioning and having access to lethal means, that even increases those chances of our youth attempting and even following through committing suicide. Despite being exposed to all of those risk factors, the suicide rate among Black youth has historically been low. Why is that changing now with suicide rates doubling since 2014? I believe it's been changing now because we historically have had support systems in place. And I feel as though those support systems are lacking in some way. They, the, our youth are feeling as though they're not being heard, not being supported, not being seen. We do have um, youth that are LGBTQ and they're not being heard or seen. And I believe that that's some of the problems that we're seeing, our connection with each other. A lot of it, I believe, unfortunately, might be social media. You know, we we think we're mo- more social when actually we're not. And we really need to see our youth and our families doing more social interaction, being with each other more, doing things with each other more. So as much as we're connected, we're equally as disconnected. And so some of the support systems we've had seems to have fallen by the wayside. Uh, They're not gone. They're just diminished. What do those support systems look like? So it would be the church, 
It would be your parents, kinship family members. So your big mama and auntie and all of those people that typically we have around us need, we need to look at reassuring that within our families again, and really being able to listen to our children. I have a nephew and I often allow him time just to sit and talk with me. Even if a lot of times what he wants to talk about are video games or he wants to be a photographer or whatever stressors are happening at school, but just allowing that space for him to have those conversations. We're often so busy working, trying to put food on the table and really don't have time to sit with our kids. And I believe having more of that would be beneficial to our children, just having a place for them to go and just be heard, even if you may not be able to solve the problem, but at least being heard. We know there are disparities in access to mental health services. What are some of the challenges Black youth face when getting mental health care? There are fewer mental health providers that really know how to work with African-American families. And some of the same types of therapy that's used for Caucasian children or other groups of children can be used with our kids. But in terms of working with our youth, you want to consider, always consider what are the intergenerational traumas that they may have experienced, Um, even exploring the post-traumatic slave syndrome and and how that has exposed itself in their family and some things and behaviors that have occurred in their family that are still connected to those old, deep-rooted, seated ways of being. And also, we want to be able to really develop trust. We have a long history of being used and misused by medical systems, by healthcare systems, by research. And so there's this stigma and this fear that goes along with seeking mental health services. So definitely when you are in front of an African-American and especially an African-American child, really, really developing trust and creating a relationship is going to move you much further than taking on the stance of, I'm the psychologist, I'm the therapist, I know what's best. You mentioned post-traumatic slave syndrome. Talk a bit about what that is. So post-traumatic slave syndrome was a theory or is a theory that was coined by Dr. Joy DeGruy. And she has a book of the same title, post-traumatic slave syndrome. And she talks about how there are some things that we still do as African-Americans that are almost a direct descendant of our time as being slaves. Um, One example would be to diminish your child's abilities. And during slavery, as many of us know, families were pulled apart. So if you're with your child and your slave master comes along and says, you know, your son is looking really good. He's doing really well. Well, the mother may put him down. Oh, he's no good. He's a waste of time. He's lazy. 
because she doesn't want her child sold off. These are behaviors that our parents still do. And that is because of that, that unconscious way of thinking that we have passed down from generation to generation over time. And that's not to say all families do it, but many families have. Many parents will make these statements or caregivers will make these statements and not really realize what they're doing. Another example is this is spanking. Spanking comes from whipping. And many parents have said, well, I want to train my child so then when they get out in the world, they can be ready. I want to break them before the world breaks them. Well, breaking them in many ways breaks their spirit. And we want to try and move away from those old behaviors and practices that we once held during slavery, that we learned during Jim Crow, that we practice, and move away from that and allow our, our children to be and allow them to grow and be and flourish. And even with their mistakes, because they're going to make mistakes, their children. How can communities be more supportive of Black youth? And what resources are there for youth who may need help? So definitely in our schools, definitely uh, in our churches, it's really time for churches to accept and look at mental health as a way to help the community and teaching on mental health. And even if it's not taught in the pulpit, churches could still have space for providing support, emotional support. Here in San Diego, a mission of the Association of Black Psychologists, we do something called emotional emancipation circles. And these are opportunities for people to come and look at the myths and dispel the lies that have been said for about us and to us and to really help create a sense of worthiness and purpose and and to uh, help improve depression. So that is one resource. Uh, and and our organization is is more than willing to come into your environment or host one where you can come and invite families and young adults and youth to share their concerns and their healing. And of course, for more information or to connect with those resources, you can go to kpbs.org. I've been speaking with Dr. Monica Hinton, president of the Association of Black Psychologists, San Diego chapter. Dr. Hinton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Western monarch butterflies migrate to California each year to wait out the cold months, traveling hundreds of miles. Initial reports say that more than 200,000 monarchs have gathered along the coast this winter, forming huge clusters and groves to stay warm. But the monarchs are in danger. Scientists say that back in the 1980s, millions of monarchs came to California each year. By 2020, 
that number dropped to fewer than 2,000. The Bay Curious podcast team has been digging into the threats facing these essential pollinators. Reporter Amanda Stupai visited Lake Merritt in Oakland looking for answers. There's a lot of monarchs flying around. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is their spot. I'm with Brooke Levin and Tora Rocha looking for butterflies. A lot of people know that bees play an important role in pollination and how plants reproduce. It's less well known that butterflies do the same thing. I would see there's one sunning on the bottom of that branch right there. Yeah. Rocha got interested in butterflies while working for the city of Oakland. She used to landscape its parks. She realized over a decade ago that a lot of the things her crews did to make parks safe and tidy for visitors were bad for the creatures living there. I realized that my landscape practices were destroying habitat for pollinators. And pollinators are crucial to the food chain. They help plants reproduce and are a source of food for larger animals. Rocha decided to shift her practices to create habitat for creatures like bees and monarch butterflies. They're mating right there oh, yep. in front of us. She shows me a patch of milkweed. It's a plant with long, flat, smooth leaves that are a vibrant green color. You know, the milkweed is sort of the cruising zone. The males just cruise around it waiting for a female to come in. Rocha co-founded a nonprofit called the Pollinator Posse that offers training and resources to people who want to protect pollinators, like the monarch butterflies. She says monarchs are the flashy ambassador for pollinators, which is fine by her. Once you help one pollinator, you're really helping them all. And a lot of people don't realize how much humans are hurting pollinators. So we can't let the monarchs go because it means we're failing the rest of the pollinators. That once the pollinators go, the songbirds go. Then the songbirds go, guess what? And the bees go, we're all gone. Because you can have food. The last couple of years have been scary for monarch lovers. In 2020, observers counted fewer than 2,000 monarchs along California's coast. That's scary low. In the 1980s, there were millions. And even stranger, the butterfly's behavior seems to be changing. We saw monarchs breeding throughout the year. My 37 years working in the parks in Oakland never saw monarchs in May or June in this garden mating or doing anything like that. Normally, monarchs show up in the fall, mate, and rest, what's called overwintering, then take off again in the spring. But recently, Bay Area residents have been seeing caterpillars and butterflies year-round. And what is folks' best guess or hypothesis at this point as to why that's happening? That's the controversy. Rocha says scientists aren't sure what's going on. But some think if the monarch population dips too low, monarchs will give up migrating altogether. One thing is for sure, monarchs still need help. Loss of habitat, pesticides, and climate change are all threatening this beautiful bug. If we're willing to let an iconic species die, then we've really messed up. But helping is trickier than it seems. For years, well-meaning folks would raise monarchs in their homes or backyards. I was guilty of it. I reared a ton, you know, and I thought I was doing the right thing. Maybe you even raised monarchs in your elementary school classroom. But raising monarchs is actually illegal, just like it's illegal to raise any wild animal. The problem with rearing them is if you rear them indoors, they don't get the cues from nature to know what part of the migration they are. 
there are two proven ways people can help pollinators like monarchs, and they're legal. A big one is making your garden pollinator-friendly by growing nectar plants. That's what adult monarchs, bees, and hummingbirds eat. But plants have to be pesticide-free. Ask the nurseries the hard questions, because they'll tell us we use pesticides because no one wants to buy a plant that has aphids. Well, we want to see aphids because that means it hasn't been sprayed. Monarch caterpillars, on the other hand, only eat milkweed. Rocha says it really should be the native variety, not the tropical kind. That's because native milkweed goes dormant in the winter, which reinforces the monarch's traditional migration pattern. And tropical milkweed can increase the spread of a deadly parasite that kills monarchs. We need to plant more native plants and more nectar plants in the winter here in the Bay Area for the monarchs, and um, we need to be gentler on the landscape. Rocha says the other big thing you can do to help Western monarchs is count them. You know, we need to look into more observation. We just don't have the answers. This can be as simple as filling out an online form when you see caterpillars or butterflies. Or you can volunteer to collect data with other butterfly helpers at places like Children's Fairyland in Oakland. So if I talk to you like I'm talking to first graders, it's not going to be there for the meeting. This is Jackie Salas. She's in charge of the gardens at Children's Fairyland and has teamed up with Terry Smith of the Pollinator Posse to train volunteers how to identify monarch eggs and caterpillars. So we're not going to be moving any eggs or caterpillars. We're just going to be identifying what's going on on the plants that we have. Citizen scientists like these volunteers collect the data researchers all over the country will use to keep tabs on population health and patterns. You can see it. It's so tiny, though. Oh my gosh, yeah. You see it? Yeah, that, that's one of the eggs. Without the information these volunteers are collecting, scientists wouldn't know where monarchs go or which habitat to target for restoration. Tora Rocha says, in the world of butterflies, citizen scientists have made a big impact. Scientists didn't know where monarchs went in the winter. It was citizen science that tagged them and found them in Mexico. These volunteers are committed. They come out once a week searching for tiny, almost invisible specks on stems and leaves. Rocha is inspired by the passion of citizen scientists working to save pollinators like the monarchs. I can't be any prouder than just sitting here watching them flutter by and knowing that, you know, we started this in 2011 and that they're still here. Recently, monarch enthusiasts got some hopeful news. This year, the winter monarch population is way up from the dismal 2020 numbers. Early estimates show more than 200,000 butterflies overwintering along California's coast. But one good year doesn't spell relief for the monarchs. Their long-term survival still hangs in the balance. That was Amanda Stupai reporting for the Bay Curious podcast. 